Our runners are often asking us how they can optimize their recovery. And aside from getting more sleep, one of our number one tips is compression socks. Compression socks can help increase blood flow from your legs to your heart and raise your blood oxygen levels. They also minimize leg pain and cramping and reduce swelling. So they're great for after that long run or hard workout. Our favorites are Lily Trotter's compression socks. They are the strongest compression that you can get without a doctor's prescription. And they are beautiful and fun to wear with your running gear. We love their Battle Axe collection, which recognizes powerful, unstoppable women warriors. But the socks can be worn by men or by women. So we're happy to have them as a sponsor and they are offering our podcast listeners 20% off with the code RFF20 on the website, Lily Trotters. That's L-I-L-Y-T-R-O-T-T-E-R-S dot com. We just wanted to take a quick break to give a shout out to our newest sponsor, UFOs. If you're a longtime listener, you know that UFO shoes are an integral part of our recovery and we've been wearing their new boots all winter long. UFOs are the original recovery footwear brand, helping to reduce load and stress so your body can rebuild throughout the day. Often the aches and pains we're feeling in our feet, ankles, knees, and even our hips can be due to not wearing supportive shoes. We wear our supportive running shoes when we're running, but what do we wear when we're not running? UFOs reduce shock impact on the body by 37%, making it easier for your body to recover faster. Stay tuned to our podcast and social media channels this month for a chance to win a pair of UFOs. And check them out now on their website at UFOs, O-O-F-O-S dot com. One of the pieces of running gear that we've both used for 15 years is our SPY belt. It's one of our favorite pieces of running gear. SPY belt stands for small personal items. And we both started using it many years ago to carry our nutrition during races. It's great, no bounce, no chafing, and a great way to carry nutrition. But since then, I'll be honest, I use mine as my purse. I use it for my phone, my keys, wallet, and strap it on and don't have to worry about carrying a purse. So it's one of our favorite running items and we are so excited to have Spy Belt as one of our sponsors and they are offering our listeners 15% off through May 15th. You can order online at spybelt.com and enter the code RUNFARTHERFASTER15, all one word, lowercase letters. Give it a try. We think that you'll love the Spy Belt for whatever you have to carry when you need your hands free. Hey, Lisa. Hi, Julie. How's your week going? It's great. How's yours? It's going well. Um, I guess since we are a Boston Marathon-focused podcast, we should first talk about some news out of Boston with respect to what the race is going to look like on October 11th. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it's you know trickling out, and I think um, news starts to come out, and we should all kind of take it a little bit with a grain of salt just because things are changing so rapidly. Actually, while we've been on the phone, we got a news alert that the CDC is now saying that uh, that fully vaccinated uh, individuals no longer need to wear a mask indoor or outdoors with some exceptions. So we haven't read fully what the CDC's recommendation is, but things are changing on a daily basis. So um, one, you know, I think we talked about this last week that one one thing I, I heard was, uh, you know, an interview with um, Tom Grilk, the, the um, head of the, the BAA, and asking him, well, now that there are some, you know, things are opening up, will things change for the Boston Marathon? And he said, no, because permits have been issued on the basis of a, of a COVID plan that was designed you know, earlier in time. And so that those changes probably won't, won't really be effectuated, but, um, but so we're starting to get some information out of Boston about what things are going to look like in it. And it will look very different this year. Um, the, what we're hearing about the shuttles or the buses to Hopkinton, where we're typically um, is a really big part of the Boston experience is getting on the buses in, in the commons in the morning and taking the very long ride out to Hopkinton, which always makes us think, wow, I have to run this entire way back. Um, but we have a lot of fun on the buses. We meet other runners. We can, um, you know, it's really a great part of the experience. And then you're dropped off in Hopkinton at the Athletes Village, which is another part of the experience of hanging around Athletes Village um, and uh, before the race starts and before the, the waves are released. And this year, um, to 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 um, really lessen that congregation of humanity will be um, buses will be arriving and that will basically be your start wave. You'll get out and it's it, it sounds like it'll be kind of a start at your own 
time and pace whenever you're ready. You'll use the porta potties, you'll get do your warm up, whatever you need to do. And then you just go through the start line and it'll start your um, timing. And, and I've seen a lot of people mentioning that was very similar in 2018 in the later start waves when the weather got really bad and they basically told people just go to the start and go. Um, so there wasn't the big fanfare of, um, of the, you know, the start and the starting corrals and the guns going off. It was just get to that start line and get going. And so it sounds very similar to that. And um, that'll be a quite a different experience this year. I hope that by April of 2022, we might be back to the, typical Boston experience, because that's really what we've grown to become, you know, we've become accustomed to and we look forward to. Uh, but I think everyone's also just really grateful that we may be able to run from Hopkinton to Boston in, in April and in, in, uh, in October. For sure. And, you know, as it gets closer, uh, we will delve into a little bit because of some of the logistical changes of the race, how that will change how we fuel before the race, because a lot of fueling for Boston is um, dependent on the unusual late time compared to other races. And now that we won't be staged for several hours um, in Hopkinton, where we'll have a chance to leisurely eat before we, we start the race, there are some um, things to consider. And we talked a little bit about this last week as well. And, and the other part, of course, to consider is our warm up and, and what that's going to look like, because typically a warm up is partially just a rather longish walk to the start from um, Hopkinton High School. So those are a couple of things off the top of my head that come to mind with respect to how we may need to just tweak a few things before starting this particular fall Boston Marathon. And um, given that we both have a, a many years of knowledge um, of this race because we've run it collectively 27 times, you've run it 17, I've run it 10, um, it, this is stuff we think about a lot. You know, we, we know what it's supposed to look like, but we also recognize what changes will impact us and what changes won't be a big deal. Um, so to that end, we just wanted to announce that we are um, putting together a virtual group Boston training program. We do not do this every year. We typically do all of our um, Boston Marathon training of our runners through our private virtual one-on-one -on -one coaching. But the reason that we decided to put this group virtual coaching program together is because of exactly what I just mentioned, the unusual nature of the fall Boston marathon, just it presents some interesting dynamics. And we wanted to provide runners an opportunity for those who don't necessarily want to invest in one-on-one -on -one coaching with us, but want sort of that information. We have a program that we're doing. It's going to start in July and run until the Boston Marathon. All of our private virtual coaching clients who would still like our virtual coaching services for Boston will be availed of all of the um, all of the elements of this group program. It's just the group program is more of a schedule without the hands-on coaching, but within it, we will also be providing um, periodic Zoom calls with speakers and coaching information. We will be providing race prep, um, a very Boston specific schedule um, with some options to, you know, have a little bit of variety in your mileage if you're someone who likes to run on the lower end of the scale versus the higher end of the scale and access to us if you have occasional questions. Again, it's not the same as one-on-one -on -one coaching, but it is a very tailored Boston specific program that we will be providing for runners who are running the Boston Marathon. We did receive some questions is this applicable to those who want to run a fall marathon? Absolutely. We never turn anyone away, but uh, just recognize that the, the program, the schedule, the workouts will be Boston focused. Um, so for those that don't care and want to join this type of program, um, we, we open it to any fall marathoner. So more information about it is on our website. You can just click the link to register. Um, the cost of it for the entire program is $150, which we think is a good value because it amounts to about $10 a week. So at least and I just one, one correction. Yeah. We start June 20th. Oh, June sorry. 20th is June a start 20th. date. So it's a 16 week. It's a 16 week program. And like you said, you know, we have gotten some questions, especially from people running Chicago, which is the same weekend, if they could do that program. And you certainly can. It, it, it will be a program for experienced marathoners. So somebody who's already um, gotten their mileage up, you know, at least to the half marathon distance and and presumably or ideally have past marathon running experience because it will be a little bit more, um, you know, more for, for those um, veteran marathon 
runners. Um, but really, yes, if you know if you've got another marathon and you want to hop into the program, um, recognizing that it's designed specifically for Boston, um, that would be fine. So we're we're looking forward to that, and and it's it's designed similarly to our speed and strength program that we just are wrapping starting getting close to wrapping up where it's a, it's a group program and a group schedule, but you get the support, the coaching support, you get the resources and you get the camaraderie of others that are training for, for something similar. Um, uh, and we'll have a, you know, a Facebook page, a private Facebook page where people can, can communicate. And we're looking forward to getting to Boston and having a, having a shakeout run there and getting to actually meet a lot of not only our local uh, runners that we know that are going up, but we've been in touch with so many, you know, some of our clients that are farther away that we've never met in person. And also just people who listen to the podcast who've reached out to us. Um, you know, we're looking forward to, to getting to meet people in Boston, but we'll have a shakeout run in Boston. So it should be fun. Yeah, we're super, we're super excited already. It's just so nice to have a race on the calendar. It's, it's really exciting. And uh, we also just want to reiterate, we've gotten a lot of emails this week from runners who've reached out who missed, just missed that 747 cutoff or qualified and, and didn't get into the October race. And we just want to reiterate, it is such a random, high, ridiculous standard because of COVID. And if you qualified once, you will qualify again. It's so frustrating. And, and we, of course, talked about it a lot on our episode with Conroy last week, which prompted runners to reach out. And we we agree wholeheartedly. We, we feel it. And we just hope that those who qualified that aren't able to run in the fall will, don't give up. Go out there, run a fall marathon, and, and you'll be back. You'll, or if you haven't run Boston yet, you'll get there. It's not going away. The BA will make sure of it. <laughs> Look, they're, they're doing everything they can to bring it back. So they're having it on Indigenous Peoples Day or Columbus Day, whatever you choose to call it. And that says a lot about the BAA. They, they are doing everything they can to bring this race back and it'll be back. And I believe based on your the most recent announcement, Lisa, that you just mentioned, I believe now more than ever that will be back in full force in April, 2022. Yeah. And the, so, the, the silver lining is that as you get older, you, you edge toward those new age groups and you get a little bit extra time. So, you know, it's, there's that, that, that comes in, into play as well. So, yeah. yeah. And Lisa, do you, do you think that the BAA is going to take off any more time with the qualifying um, requirements? I don't think for 2022, I don't think so. I think they'll go back to, you know, and, and I think the, um, you know, the, obviously they typically announce, any changes a good year and a half ahead of time. So that gives people a chance to, to actually qualify under the new time. So I don't foresee that for the upcoming 2022, my guess would be that depending on how 2022 goes, if it's back to a smaller buffer of like, you know, two or three minutes that um, that's required, then it will probably stay the same. What's happened historically is that as the time buffer has grown over the years, like from a one minute to two minutes to five minutes to six or seven minutes, then the BAA steps in and says, okay, we've got to dial it back. Um, but that doesn't happen very often. It's happened, I think, two times in all of the 20 some odd years that I've run it where the, where the times have changed. So um, I don't think that's going to happen immediately. So I think people can feel pretty safe looking at the standards now and, and setting their goals for the fall and into, into next year. So that's a great point. So um, we're really excited to introduce our guest for today. She's a firecracker. She's awesome. Lisa, did you enjoy talking with her? I did. She is, um, like you said, a, you know, just, just really <laughs> tells it like it is. And, you know, very in line with our philosophy on nutrition. We are not registered dietitians and we always put that disclaimer out there. We don't try to practice outside of our area of expertise, but nutrition and diet is in inherently intertwined with what we do. And it is a, you know, a very big um, question uh, that a lot of our runners often have and um, really can make or break, um, especially our, our distance athletes who are running half marathons and marathons or nutrition becomes an integral part of their training. It's not just the running. And um, we have, uh, you know, really always advocated for a um, practical, sound, science-backed, really um, balanced approach to nutrition. And really um, we've always gotten a little bit frustrated when we um, face kind of the, the um, you know, the, 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 the sales pitches for uh, the quick and easy fixes to all of your um, weight loss uh, or your, um, you know, your weight loss uh, issues. And also not even just weight loss, but we see it a lot in the running world of, you know, supplements or, um, specific ways of eating that can enhance your running. You know, we've heard people say, I run as a key, I'm keto and I run and I'm a, you know, an endurance athlete, but I'm keto. And we, we always struggle with these kind of 
um, quick fixes or one size fits all or these rules that are really strict and, um, and and it's hard when runners come to us and say that that's what you know that's what they want to do and they also want to run because it's hard to um, fuel your running and and your recovery when you are trying to adhere to something that's that strict. So she is really in line with our philosophy and with the dietitians that we've worked with and we've talked to on the podcast before, Amy Goldsmith, um, Nancy, um, you know, all, all of the the, um, the uh, dietitians that we've spoken to, she's right in line with all of, all of those philosophies. Absolutely. So her name is Abby Langer and she has been a registered dietitian for over 20 years. And she is out of Toronto. And um, how we found her was she has a really active um, social media presence because she, she has made it her life's work to write and talk about in depth the debunking of fad diets and nutrition myths. She's awesome. So she recently wrote a book and um, her book is amazing. And it's called Good Food, Bad Diet, The Habits You Need to Ditch Diet Culture, Lose Weight and Fix Your Relationship with Food Forever. It is an excellent, excellent book. I got myself a copy and read it. And we talked to Abby today all about her book, her philosophy. And it's actually a really fun and funny conversation because she just tells it like it is. And she is not afraid to put herself out there. And we really appreciated not only her um, guidance, advice, but also just specifically talking about what we need to look out for when we are looking at media, whether it's social media or mainstream media, um, when trying to determine what is fact and what is fiction, what is evidence-based and what is not when it comes to nutrition. Yeah, she's great. So um, we'll turn it over to her. But before we do that, speaking of real live races, my running buddy, Paul, is running York Marathon this weekend. So I just want to give him a shout out. He's going to do great. He's in great shape and all ready and um, ready for this race. So I just want to give him a shout out. Good luck, Paul. Go get it. All right. Well, everyone, thanks for listening. And uh, was that Buster? Bye, Buster. <laughs> All right, Lisa. Goodbye. Goodbye, he was good Buster. the whole time. <laughs> All right, Lisa, I hope you have a great week. You too, Julie. Bye. Bye. Abby Langer, welcome to the Run Farther and Faster podcast. We are so excited that you're joining us today. Thank you so much. Um, so, Abby, before we get into the nitty gritty. We just wanted to give you a chance to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about, about yourself and your most recent book. So my name is Abby Langer, of course, and I'm a registered dietitian and owner of Abby Langer Nutrition based out of Toronto, Canada. And I've been a dietitian for over 20 years. I've pretty much seen it all. And I'm known primarily for debunking nutrition myths. Um, but that's not exactly what I did in my latest book, Good Food, Bad Diet. I, For that book, I basically uh, wanted to teach people to ditch diet culture and it heal the relationship with food and eating and their bodies. And it's so important because so many people have, you know, not very good relationships with food in their bodies and I see I've seen it for years and I really wanted to do something to help them. That's amazing and and certainly you echo um, what we see as well in terms of just the complicated relationship particularly with women and food yeah. and, and certainly with men too but um, your book definitely has more it leans more toward women and we'll talk about that in in a little bit but before we get started on that um, tell us a little bit about your practice in general, your specialty, and, and what kind of experience you have um, over the course of your 20 years as a registered dietitian. Okay, well, I started out as an ICU dietitian, actually, and did a lot of uh, work in the hospital. Um, after that, I spent 10 years in a primary care clinic. So I counseled people for all different things from basically from cradle to grave. Um, and then I went out on my own because I was tired of having nannies raise my kids and I have two girls. Um, they're now 11 and 13 and I wanted to work for myself. So I I launched Abby Langer Nutrition. Uh, I had a lot to say about nutrition and I knew that no one could say it the way I can. And so it, it was a nutrition counseling uh, practice as well as nutrition communications. I have since dropped the counseling about two years ago and 
just write now and uh, just do sort of nutrition communications and uh, branding with companies. So I, but I've seen it all like primarily I would say weight loss and just healthy eating uh, in the last part of my practice with, with the, the one-to-one counseling, a lot of people would come to me because they had benefits and they wanted to learn how to eat properly, or they wanted to lose weight, or, uh, they had diabetes and they wanted to learn how to manage their blood sugars. But primarily I saw a lot of stuff, a a lot of people who had a lot of stuff around (laughs) their relationship with food and their bodies. And what did you learn? I mean, I know there's so much you learned, but what have you learned and continue to learn about that relationship and, and how that sort of interplays with one's relationship with food? You know, I think that it can be summed up in one sentence and that is, it's rarely about the food. You know, when someone has eating issues or issues, you know, with chronic dieting, it's really rarely about the food, you know, people say, you know, you just have to eat less and move more, you know, if you want to lose weight, but it's not about the food. People don't become overweight in most cases because they love food. They're eating for different reasons. And, and those reasons, you know, often are from our childhood. And so I've learned really how, how deeply people internalize lessons and core beliefs that they've developed in their childhood and how profoundly these things um, govern their choices through adulthood about food and what they eat and how much they diet and how they feel about themselves. It's, it's really been eye-opening. So Abby, you mentioned you've got two girls, you know, uh, 11 and 13, and we both also have, um, you know, teenage girls as well. And you mentioned, you know, how so much of this is from, you know, childhood, what, and and we could probably do a whole podcast on this, but how do we as parents then um, raise our, not only girls, but boys as well, to have a healthy relationship with food? It's so hard. And the reason why it's hard is not because um, of what happens at home, but also what happens when you're not around. And there's messages you just can't control because of course the kids are bombarded everywhere they go, even at school around other kids with negative messages around food and eating. So what I recommend to parents and what I do for myself is, you know, neutralize food. So don't ever say, you know, X food is bad and this food is good. And, you know, you know, you can't have ice cream, you know, because it's bad for you. I let my kids make their own choices um, and self-regulate, self-regulate around food. So for example, like Halloween for as long as I can remember, I let my kids get as much candy as they want. I take the cups because they're the best yes I'm like go to that house they're getting giving up peanut butter cups oh my god (laughs) um but then I let them just eat as much as they want and people are like how do you do that oh my god my kids are gonna get sick they actually don't we usually have Halloween candy left over by Christmas just because they get tired of it but you know it's it's teaching kids that food is food and also teaching kids that about bodies not disparaging other people's bodies in front of your kids or at all, not disparaging your own body, not dieting in front of your kids, eating a wide variety of foods in front of your children. All of these things, you know, people think, well, my kid's so young and, you know, she doesn't see me weighing myself every day and she won't notice if I don't eat carbs. And it's like, oh, she'll notice. She'll notice all of those things. And kids, they take these little kernels and they plant them and they become these negative core beliefs that go into adulthood. So be very careful about the messaging that you're sending either verbally or non-verbally to your children. That's such great advice. And, and while your advice is common sense, so much of it, it's hard when, when one's relationship with food is complicated themselves, how are they expected to then be able to parent? So just sort of hearing that, even if someone's heard it before, to be reassured, like it's okay to let your kids eat what they want to eat and allow them to self-regulate is, is really a great and, and healthy message. Um, so to that end, you mentioned uh, negative core beliefs. So we can jump right in. In your book, you cover 
the tenets of your book are talking about negative core beliefs and how those kind of form your relationship with food. So first of all, could you share uh, with our listeners what is a negative core belief and then just briefly share what the negative core beliefs are in your book that kind of form the meat and potatoes of your book, no pun intended. Sure. So negative core beliefs are essentially the our beliefs around where we fit in this world. And they pretty much govern all of our choices. Well, our core beliefs, not we have negative and positive core beliefs. Hopefully people will have core, positive core beliefs, but a lot of people have negative core beliefs around food and eating in their bodies. So, and these, like I said before, these core beliefs can be, are, well, are usually formed early in childhood. Um, and so, for example, one, uh, one core belief might be, you know, I am my um, I am what I eat, or I am my diet. So people might think, you know, um, if I eat clean, or if I eat uh, really healthy, then I'm a good person. And, but when Can I-, I interrupt you for a second, you just kicked me back to Schoolhouse Rock. I remember on Saturday mornings, a Schoolhouse Rock, when they would sing, you are what you eat from your head down to oh, your yeah. feet. It's, you know what, they still, it, that's like still such a common phrase. I just saw someone say, like an adult say that on Instagram, and a lot of people do, because they, they don't think about, well, what does that mean? But, you know, it, it, it actually can be thought of as, you know, if you put what you perceive to be junk food in your body, we, you may start to think that you are lesser. So if you eat, if you're trying to eat clean, for example, and I just cannot stand that word to describe food, it's such a morality based term, you really start thinking you are your diet. Oh, I'm so bad. I ate that cake. I'm so I'm such a I have no willpower. Oh, I eat clean. I'm so good. You know, um, another core belief that I see a lot with people is I'm not worthy unless I weigh X. So, and this uh, comes a lot of the time from people who have watched their parents, as, as these people grow up, watch their parents' diet. Um, or thin equals lovable. That's another one. So what happens is when a child sees their parent dieting um, or making, making remarks, negative remarks about bodies that are bigger, the child internalizes that messaging to think, to, to be, well, if I weigh a certain amount, I'm, I'm bad? Am I bad? What if I gain weight? And I cannot tell you how many people I've seen in my practice who grew up like that and are like, I can't gain weight because, you know, I'm so afraid. I'm so afraid to eat. I'm so afraid to gain weight because, you know, it, it's bad. They can't really give me even like a reason, but they punish themselves for decades because they grew up with these parents who, you know, unbeknownst to them, of course, have, were dieting and, be, and uh, unconsciously sending out this message like fat is wrong. Fat, you're not worthy if you're fat. Abby, do you so, see that, that similar um, maybe mentality in athletes or runners? Because like, we see it a lot with uh, runners that come to us. And I, you know, had a runner not, not too in the distance past tell me, I know I need to weigh X to be fast. And I said, why does that, you know, why would that be, you know, if that's, why is that, why, why do you think that? So do you see that with athletes where they think they have to, or we get athletes saying, well, I need a six pack. I know I want my six pack so I can be faster, like my six pack abs so I can be faster. I know if I can get a six pack, I'll be faster. Yeah. But you you look at like all of the, look at the elite athletes that they're seeing in competition. They, a lot of them do have six packs. The elite runners, they're thin as reeds. You know, the people who uh, win marathons, you know, are, appear to be very slender. And so I think they, people tend to extrapolate that body image to mean that it's necessary to win. And it's dangerous because it, it can be a real downward vortex, um, especially if you need nourishment to, to perform and you're not giving your body that nourishment. So yeah, it's, it's a problem. 
For sure. And to your point, there is also a, a separate issue, which is that athletes, runners in particular, who are at that level are genetically, they have the gift of genetics. And, and often they're genetically able to have this high, often always high VO2 capacity and other talent that is, you know, natural born talent. And then they work really hard to that end. They're built more like to use Nancy Clark, the registered dietitian we had on a couple months ago. They're built more like a Vizsla dog. Some people are built more like a different breed. I, I right. joke, I, I, I love golden retrievers. I'm more of a golden retriever. It doesn't mean that you're any less capable of being a great runner and to reach your fullest potential, but that doesn't mean naturally you would be able to look like a Vizsla. I think that you, we can really translate this sort of discussion to people who aren't elite athletes either, because a lot of people will do a certain diet uh, or like follow a celebrity and say, well, I want to look like that. But listen, it's genetics. Like you may never be, or you probably won't be. Okay, let's just say you won't be <laughs> like this celebrity. They have genetics and you don't, that, it's something you can't change. So be the best that you can be and stop punishing yourself. Amen. That's like exactly right. Stop punishing yourself and reach your fullest potential. So um, moving on, tell us, uh, you have a couple more core beliefs. I think we got through two. Um, so that I think there's three more negative core beliefs that you had meant that you had mentioned in your book. Yes. Um, so again, like thin is lovable, but thin is attractive. Mm -hmm. So this, I mean, it, it can come from parents, but it also comes from the media, just like we were talking about. I mean, what, what are people or children supposed to think when everyone they see is thin and then the fat people are you know, for example, I always think of like Fat Amy in Pitch Perfect. Fat people are punchline. Um, and it's, it's so unfair and it gives them a real skewed perception of how things are basically. So, you know, growing up and seeing this, it's like, I have to be thin to, to be deserving of positive comments and positive perceptions. Um, another core belief is food equals safety or food equals love. So I, I, I've had a lot of people who had negative experiences in childhood, just negative childhoods um, overall, and they would use food to cope. And they acquired this negative core belief of food is safety. And this comes, uh, um, into play with a lot of emotional eaters where if they're in um, a situation that they're uncomfortable in or that they deem to be unsafe emotionally in the adulthood, they go for the foods that would comfort them in childhood. And, you know, it's, it's not true. Obviously food isn't, food is not going to make you safe. So it's important for people to go back and and really explore the feelings around what's making them eat and what's making them feel the, those negative feelings and why they gravitate towards these certain foods. Um, and of course, you know, I would, I always recommend like in my book throughout, I'm not a registered therapist. I always tell people, you know, you may not, we may need to work with a therapist to explore these things because, you know, it's, it's really sometimes very shitty to go back and take a harder look at what happened in childhood. Um, and, but it's, it's worth it in the end because you'll be free to make change, changes to your life. I always tell people, you know, there really isn't any meaningful or long lasting change to your diet without first doing this kind of work. Yeah, I, I think you brought up a great point with respect to therapy because you know, so much of the choices that one makes with respect to food is emotional. And, and there's also a fine line because it's okay to enjoy, you know, the foods you love from childhood. So when is it unhealthy? So you said food is safety and love. I was like, hmm, well, sometimes when I'm really upset, I really enjoy a night with my friends, Ben and Jerry. Yeah. So when is that? <laughs> when you know, is that? We're so conditioned 
to feel that emotional eating is bad and it's wrong, but it's not. Like how many times have I not been hungry, but you know, someone offers me cake and I'm like, of course, like it's a happy occasion. I'm going to have cake. Um, but if, but there is a line. And if you're using food as your only form of coping, then it's time to get more tools in your, to in your coping toolbox. And that's sort of the line. Like if you have no other ways or coping methods, except besides food, this is a problem. That's, thank you for explaining that a little bit more. And yeah, then absolutely. I think, I think we have one more negative core belief. Um, um, I can't be trusted around food. Okay. Now this one is 1000% a brainchild of the wellness industry, how you cannot trust your body um, and to do what it needs to do, or you have to take X, Y, and Z out of your diet so that you're healthier. Meanwhile, you know, there's no reason for that. So that is definitely a negative core belief um, and that is perpetuated a lot in today's environment, food wellness environment. Um, but it's, it's untrue. Our bodies know what to do and we can trust them for, uh, to give us our internal cues of hunger and fullness. But, you know, I mean, if people have been dieting chronically for years and years, they sometimes lose those cues. They're in there and they can get them back, but they're, you know, they have to work on it. And I talk about all of this in Good Food, Bad Diet. I mean, I teach people how to find their own negative core beliefs. These are just examples of common ones. Then I talk about hunger and fullness and how to find yours again. Um, and it's, you know, it's an exercise. It's, it's not like I'm going to read this book and I'm going to be like super healthy. It's like, we need to do the work first, but once you do the work, you're good. I, I also appreciate that you mentioned, um, you didn't use the phrase, but I will intuitive eating yeah. because intuitive eating is, is the non-diet sort of, I don't want to say non-diet diet, but the non-diet approach to eating. Right. Um, however, like you mentioned, if you don't know in the first place how to read your own hunger cues yet, then there still needs to be sort of a plan. So I like that you sort of allow people to, to develop a plan so that you're not just thrown out there, hey, go try intuitive eating because it, it wouldn't work. It, it's it, it's impossible to trust people to know how to do that if they've never done that before. And then it gets really confusing and then everyone just kind of gives up. So I like that you kind of give in your book some direct sort of tips on, on how to start that process. Yeah, you know, um, I'm not an intuitive eating dietitian and the maybe 2% that separates me from an intuitive dietitian, uh, eating dietitian is that I believe in healthy weight loss and supporting weight loss when people want it, whereas they, they don't necessarily do that. That makes sense. So there's another core belief that um, you talk about in your book that I, I and Lisa and I both see a lot on our own social media feed. And that's because, you know, our feed tends to also contain a lot of health and wellness efforts, sure. so to speak, is um, sort of identifying with like what your diet is. Like I'm, I'll just throw one out there. Like not, I'm, I am my diet. So that's, I'm paleo. Yeah. yeah. So that's, for sure. Go ahead. Yeah. Oh, that's what we were talking about earlier, that mm -hmm. people really make these morality based um, categorizations of food as good, bad, clean, dirty, junky, you know, all of that stuff becomes this like narrative about who you are as a person. And then you people tend and it sounds intellectually it sounds like you would never do that, right? You know, you're not dirty, you know, you're not, you know, bad, but emotionally, it's a completely different story. And even though you may not think that it's happening to you, if you're a chronic dieter or someone who holds this negative core belief, it's very real. And people end up determining their worth by what they eat. And ouch, I mean, that can be really, really harmful. So now that you've kind of gone through um, some of the issues that one has with respect to negative core beliefs, um, let's say someone's listening and they're like, gosh, I think I have some of those. 
how would one go about sort of shifting their perspective and specifically with respect to media and, and, and what come, the messaging that comes at us regularly? How, how do we discern what is accurate and what isn't? And how do we filter through that media to be able to address some of those negative core beliefs that one may hold? Well, I think it's a good idea to assume that nothing in, on Instagram is real. And as someone who has spent a lot of time with influencers and I'm just in that world, I have one foot in that world. I would not have both feet. Um, I can tell you that everything you see is very curated. I mean, I've seen an influencer walk down the street 40 times to get one image of her posing just perfectly. It's just not real. And so, and you know, understand that the images and narrative that you see in in the media they serve a purpose and that is that people are selling things either they're selling themselves um, or products and it's tough but um, you know you have to it, it, it with every negative core belief the first step in turning it around is questioning if it's really true so for example, you know, if someone says, well, I'm so bad I ate cake, <laughs> let's just oversimplify this. Um, then, you know, the first thing I would say to them is, do you really think that's true? Like ask yourself, is this really true? Do you truly believe that you're a bad person because you ate this certain thing? And I mean, I think, you know, it, it, it jars us into reality because a lot of the time, like I said, it's so emotional and it's not intellectual, you know, these thoughts. And so it jars you, you know, and, you know, I think if you question yourself, am I a bad person because I eat cake? The answer is going to be no. And then you flip it into a positive. So take that, take that core belief, uh, you know, I'm bad because I eat cake. Okay, so we know it's not true. Um, how can you flip it into a, a positive? I ate cake and it was really delicious. And it's what I needed at that time. So I'm a firm believer in not only physical nourishment, but emotional nourishment. And I think a healthy diet, because people always ask me, you know, you're a dietitian, what do you think a healthy diet is? I think a healthy diet is a combination of physically and emotionally nourishing food. It's not, there's nothing wrong with having cake. You know, sometimes you want to be nourished emotionally um, more than physically and, you know, just get over it get over it. Again, like if you're emotionally eating every single day, it's not, it's probably not a good idea, but like, it's okay. You have all of these other meals, you know, to physically nourish your body. And so just take a step back, take a breath. Nothing bad is going to happen to you. And just understand that like you enjoyed the cake and there's nothing wrong with that. I think that there's such a pervasive feeling in this society where like if you enjoy food and you're and you derive satisfaction from food and satisfying your hunger it's somehow like a negative thing yeah how do you but think that I mean, you mentioned you mentioned you know influencers and 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 we talk about social media a lot but especially and you've practiced for a long time 20 years like how have right. you seen um social media and um, you know, really impact all of those perceptions that we have and those those feelings that we have associated with, you know, good or bad. And and how do we sort through that on, you know, we're going to assume everything on Instagram is fake, but how do we sort, sort through that? I think that if something makes you feel bad about yourself, then it's not, a, you should tune it out, honestly. And if something seems too good to be true, then you should tune it out. And you know, I, I think people like to promote things that are like quick fixes or like X food is so healthy, the chlorophyll water. Oh, it's so healthy. You know, it makes my skin great and whatever, you know, that shit's been around for years and it hasn't done anything for anyone like, or celery juice. Like if it, it seems sketchy, it's sketchy. And you can always go to my website to to search it because I review 
everything, like all of these trends, like the medical medium and like whatever, charcoal. And it's like, just stay the course because certain things are never, and speaking of someone who has seen nutrition trends come and go, but certain things are never going to be like, out of style, if you will, for lack of a better phrase, you know, eating more whole plant-based foods. And I'm not a plant, like I'm not a vegan, I'm not vegan, but you know, I think a plant forward diet is always going to be healthy. Like some people are like, oh, lectins are harmful. Like that kind of stuff, like people telling you that food that you thought was healthy or it's not like chickpeas, that kind of stuff, like all of this stuff is bullshit, but like eating a lot of plants, having a varied diet, not eating with guilt or shame, you know, like those very basic tips are just keep following those and ignore the noise because nothing is a miracle. And trust me, if there is a miracle found, the FDA is going to regulate it and they'll, they'll, they'll sell it or the doctors will sell it. It's not going to be like on TikTok. Yeah. Speaking of TikTok and miracles, talk to us a little bit about MLMs and the whole, you know, kind of the, yeah, (laughs) we could go down, we could do a whole, another whole podcast on that, but, but, um, you know, and, and we, what we, what we see on our end is that these MLMs really use social media as their way to, to reach people. And um, it's pretty obvious where, but, but it sucks in a lot of people. So talk to us a little about the evolution of MLMs and, and, and that, that aspect. Okay, so uh, I don't know how MLM start started. I think like Juice Plus was like one of the first ones. Oh my God, I just can't. I've taken down basically every MLM there is on my site um, because they just are predatory. They come out with every MLM has like the same products. They have a fat burner. They have a protein powder. They have a meal replacement. They have all these like supplements you don't need. And you know, they suck you in. And even like for the salespeople, like only 1% of MLM salespeople like make money. Um, But they are just a waste of money. And the products are no better than anything you would find like at a drugstore. Like someone the other day was like, I'm looking for probiotic is Plexus, the probiotic from Plexus, you know, great. And I'm just like, you know, like, go to the drugstore and get a probiotic. Like, why would you even bother to engage these people? You know, so MLMs, yeah, it's just the the claims they make are so awful. Their sales techniques are so pernicious. I just, no, no, you don't need a beach body. I could go on and on. (laughs) No, we appreciate that. I feel like we've talked about them quite a bit on here and I think it's because a lot of MLMs, their salespeople, they call themselves health coaches. And that confuses the consumer into thinking that the health coach is the same as a registered dietitian with years of experience and internships and clinics and a science evidence-based background. And I hope our listener, we know our listeners at this point know the difference, but especially vulnerable consumers, especially those in certain demographics. And, and again, maybe because my feed is, is curated more to my age based on algorithms. I see so much lately um, about aging and women and oh, menopause. And it's such a vulnerable group. And it, it really upsets me personally and professionally to think that um, otherwise very healthy women are made to feel less than because they're getting older or because like their body is wrong. You need yeah. to think menopause. It's the meno belly. You know, I had a guy, Jay Tita, or Tata. He calls it death fat. I mean, it's just like it's it it uses fear and shame. To, these companies use fear and shame to market these products. There's another one, you know, that I reviewed. Um, I totally. I think it's called Provitalize. Is it Provitalize? It's it's. I don't even remember, but it's for menopausal women. And it, one of their ads that popped up on my feed was a woman crying because she had muffin top. And it's just, it's so disgusting. And I never miss the opportunity to take these companies down because it just makes me want to throw up. It's it, because women are so vulnerable at this time. And 
and there's not a lot of information, not a lot of good information about hormones and, and changing. There's all these hormone specialists. They're like not even close to a hormone specialist. Um, and those health coaches, yeah, like they call, they, it's just, they're so not qualified. It's very sad. Women pour thousands of dollars into these things and they get nothing. Yeah, we've seen that a lot now um, during the pandemic. We feel like we see a lot of people who maybe, you know, we talk about the pandemic 15 or pandemic 20, yeah. or, you know, they feel like they got out of shape or they put on some weight during the pandemic. And um, they seem to be particularly susceptible to these types of, of, of you know, of marketing ploys or marketing pitches. Because and, they promise you know, quick results. Right, right. Like you said before, it's like, we all want an answer. We want the, here is the answer. You pay this amount and you will get this in, in return. It's insane. And, yeah. Yeah. So what do, what do you tell, um, you know, somebody who comes to you says, I need to, I, I feel like I need to eat better or get into better shape or I need, you know, post pandemic or whenever. Yeah. And they come to you yeah. and they say like, what do I do versus going so, and signing up for one of these programs? You know, I, I, the first step is really to see what they're doing now. Um, and because a lot of people will change their diet and maybe eat a little bit more or eat different food and they won't really notice it. So seeing where they can make these tweaks to more whole foods or, you know, maybe um, tweaking the ratio of carbohydrates to fat to protein. I don't really, I don't do macros. I don't ask people to count calories or weigh themselves or count things or measure things. But, you know, as we age, I find that, you know, we may eat a little bit too, too many, uh, too many carbohydrates. And so, you know, just decreasing those, making them whole, um, but also tempering their expectations. You know, I've had way too many people come to me and say, you know, I really want to be 128 pounds. Okay, well, when was the last time you were 128 pounds? Oh, when I was 25. Oh, well, now you're 53. So that's probably not going to happen. But why don't we talk about, you know, a place where you can be comfortable and eat what you love and feel good about yourself and not have to punish yourself and starve yourself. So that's all of the stuff that we go through. Um, but generally, again, it's like adding more high quality foods to your diet as much as you can afford, because that's always a, a consideration, you know? And we go from there. Like a lot of women are my age or our age, they drink a lot of freaking wine. And like, it's become a punchline. Like, oh, it's wine o'clock or mommy's juice or whatever. And it's like, okay, well, alcohol-related illnesses and deaths have skyrocketed among women in the past few years. Statistics say that. And I don't think it's a punchline. I don't think it's funny. Like, I've, I have clients who drink three glasses of wine every night by themselves. And it's like, and then she, they come to me and they say, well, I want to lose weight. Well, by virtue of just taking the wine out, or even cutting it down by half, you're not only going to lose weight, but you're going to lessen your risk for cancer and, you know, other diseases. So it's, that's another thing we look at. That seems very practical and common sense and, and um, very much, it sounds like your approach is just about sort of troubleshooting, looking at everything as a whole and figuring out the pieces of the puzzle where the solution is nothing magical, but rather is taking one's making adjustments, but not completely overhauling what one's doing. Right. Massive overhauls are ridiculous. I want someone to be able to eat in a way that's a, that supports their lifestyle and their likes and dislikes. A lot of people try to eat around their diet like they'll say, well, I'm going to go on the keto diet. I don't care what, you know, like the impact on my lifestyle. I want to do that. And, but I, I think that's just going around a curve blindly, right? Because what, how you eat and your food choices ripple out to everyone and everything in your life. You know, what's the emotional cost, the social cost, you know, the physical cost, the financial cost of those decisions. So, you know, next time you want to go on a diet, think about that plan it out and actually don't go on a diet. <laughs> so, so we know you're not specifically a sports dietitian. And I know you mentioned to us that usually when you work with athletes that you feel need that you actually refer them out to a specific right. sports dietitian, but are there any general um, 
you know, general tenets or general um, guidance that you give athletes that have kind of that additional, um, you know, we get a lot of runners that we coach that are trying to lose some weight and maybe that's why they run, but they also are trying to perform and recover. And so there's kind of a balance between, um, you know, the, that weight loss and the, and it, it's tricky for us as coaches. So what, what guidance do you typically give athletes that may be a little bit different um, or, um, you know, what tenants do you do adhere to? You know what, I think one of the most important things that maybe some people don't realize is that over-exercising is like the worst thing for your weight. Uh, it's funny because I learned this, I mean, I know this because I've been a dietitian for a long time, but in my own life too, my husband was like, you're the only person who I know who runs and, and gains weight. Because there's a couple of factors at play here when you overexercise, and a lot of people do this because they want to lose weight. Um, like you said, when you overexercise, you get hungrier and you eat, tend to eat more. You also may have a sense of permissiveness. So, oh, well, I, you know, I went running for 13 miles. Like, you know, I'm going to eat whatever. I, I mean, I, I ran the San Francisco marathon a while ago and I gained weight during training because like, I would just, I would, go, I would go on a long run and then I would eat like two donuts and an apple fritter. And <laughs> I was so hungry. <laughs> it sucks. And then I'd go home and like stare at the wall for five hours because you're so tired. But like, you know, their sense of permiss permissiveness. Also over-exercising increases the secretion of cortisol in your body, which is a stress hormone. So that makes it very hard to lose weight. Um, so your body is like in a state of stress. Um, and it, it needs that energy, right? So you're not going to get rid of the fat. You're going to like lay down fat um, in that state. So, you know, over-exercising while people try to like exercise off their, what they eat or, you know, over-exercise to lose more weight, it doesn't work that way. Your body doesn't work that way. And so if you want to lose weight um, and you, you're running or you're training, you know, try to, first of all, eat, eat more protein and, but nourish your body and, uh, have a wide variety of foods in your diet, but also, you know, try not to overdo it. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, we often tell our runners that, you know, if you're eating enough food and the food is protein, you know, starchy vegetables for your carbohydrates. And of course, yeah. not restricting foods that, you know, you love because if you strict those foods then what's going to happen when you're really hungry after a run is you're going to eat everything that's not nailed yeah. down as we like to say, yeah. but just common sense. And sometimes it's hard to do when you're ravenous. So being on top of your hunger, especially when you're in the throes of training and knowing yeah. that you're supposed to be hungry, but instead of reaching yeah. for the donut, you're reaching for fueling foods that is going, it's going to work itself out. And then the other point is, and you know, this is a registered dietitian, but it's worth reiterating is when you are running a lot and you're drinking a lot, your body is going to hold on your muscles are going to hold on sometimes to that fuel, those carbohydrates. Glycogen, so we talked about this glycogen before. holds several yeah. times its weight in water, right? Exactly. And that doesn't mean you've gained weight. That means no. you're holding some water. So it's just, it's, it's tricky, but I think it's worth saying for those who are like, I'm going to lose weight and run a marathon. Well, it's not no. based on the scale and don't worry about the scale. No. Run and fuel. I, mean, I think I want to add one more thing. Um, because a lot of people will over exercise um, and then they'll overeat and they'll say, well, I have no willpower, uh, you know, and I want to add just so your audience knows that it's not about willpower at all. It's hormones, your hunger hormones, it will do your body will do anything when it's in a caloric deficit. And especially a severe caloric deficit, it will basically do anything to what it thinks it's doing is keeping itself alive, but it'll do anything to make you hungry and eat. So it has nothing to do with willpower. This is all, these are all hormonal shifts that make food irresistible. And that's why you feel like so ravenous and you eat everything that's not nailed down. It's like, so make sure you fuel your body enough because not eating enough is going to have a detrimental effect. 
Yeah, we see that a lot. We see a lot of runners underestimate how much they need. And we know oh, the dietitians, sure. right, the dietitians we work with here, when we send people to them, the common refrain is usually, yeah, they weren't eating enough. It's not this person was overeating, but it was, they didn't realize how much they really need to fuel themselves. Yeah. So they were having these, you know, cravings or they weren't eating well because they were ravenous and they needed to dial in how much they need and what types of you know nutrients that they need to, to support the running. So we do see that a lot. And, and what we see when we have runners who are chronically underfueled is injuries pop up eventually. Yeah. They, may, you know, they may perform well for a little while, but then injuries pop up. So that we do for see sure. more commonly is, is that underfueling, whether it's intentional or un, you know, people who think they're eating enough, but they're, they're not for the training that they're doing. Right. Yeah. All right. Well, before we sound off, we just, because this is your expertise and, and we just would really love for you to spill the tea a little bit. Talk to us about the people, that, the so-called more famous, uh, and I put this in air quotes, experts that annoy you the most and just, just rattle off a list. Oh, so oh if you are on Twitter or Instagram, they can kind of look at their um, posts through a different lens. So share with us. Oh my God. So do you have anyone, I mean, the first one is obviously Gwyneth Paltrow who like disgustingly said, oh, I just basically went off the rails during COVID. Oh God, I even ate bread and pasta. I'm like, are you fucking serious? There's people dying, dying. My my cousin is at the Mount Sinai Hospital downtown in Toronto intubating COVID patients all day long. He's an anesthesiologist. And you're sitting there whining about how you drank so much wine and ate pasta. Like, I want to punch you. So, you know, she's disgusting. But Anthony William is a real problem. The medical medium. I am getting, I think, like, my celery juice post, like, got a lot of hits in the last couple of days because the hate mail I'm getting <laughs> from people who are like, Anthony William, he cured my, you know, chronic yeast infections or whatever the hell they had, like with celery juice and his cleanses are amazing. It's like, this guy is a grifter. He doesn't even try to hide it. And people, I don't understand it. I don't understand why the medical medium, you know, he gets his fucking ideas from spirits. Like who, what kind of world do we live in? What kind of world do we live in? I just want to ask that question because like, it's so horrible and, and harmful. And it's like this huge, it fosters this huge distrust um, from mainstream medicine. It's like awful. So yeah, I hate, he's just like the worst. Um, oh, who else? I mean, anyone who calls himself a hormone expert, and they're not any kind of, you know, MLM person who calls themselves like a health coach, the worst. Like there's so many. It's what do you think like, about what do you think about Dr. Oz? You like, you know what? He has it, why is he still around? And Dr. Hyman, like so many people love the guy, but he's disgusting. Like he, he sorry, I, I mean maybe it wasn't the right word, but it's like he he's an any integrative or functional person for me it's like an instant loss of credibility or at least a red flag not every naturopath not every functional doctor or dietitian is like this but you know mark hyman he just gives doctors a bad name because he you know recommends a ton of stuff that half the people can't even afford like all grass-fed meat and like you know um organic and he uses fear-mongering to like and no science behind what he says really but he gets away with it and he has the cleveland clinic behind him to lend him credibility which is you know i don't think i've ever literally Literally, I've been on social media for years and I'm friends with a ton of physicians and I don't believe that I've ever met one single doctor, legit doctor, who likes what Mark Hyman has to say. Yeah, That's helpful because just because someone has the word, you know, the accredited MD or doctor in front of their name. And that makes it more complicated, of course, too. Because it does. You have people who are chiropractors and naturopaths calling themselves doctor. This Jay Tata guy, he calls himself an integrative endocrinologist. He's not even a doctor. Like, he's not a medical doctor. He calls himself a family physician. In Canada, if you call yourself a family physician and you're not an actual MD, that's illegal. Like, how is this legal? But it's he's licensed as a family physician in the only two states in the United States that allow it, Washington and California. 
otherwise, no. That's so interesting. That reminds us too, though, and, and we have repeated this many times that, you know, when we have runners that are like, well, I'm going to go to a nutritionist or I'm going to go to this health coach. And we always say, are they a registered dietitian? Because it's yeah. the same. You want, you talked about the science. You want the science. You want the education. You want the science. Behind, right. You want yes. the, like I had someone on my feed the other day defending like Jay Tita saying, well, naturopaths have more education than dietitians. I'm like, where are you from? Because dietitians do a four-year degree. They also, we also do a one-year internship. Our, and our, um, our curriculum's all science. It's all science. And yes, science doesn't know everything. Okay. Yes. But, you know, we have to, we put in so many hours of anatomy, physiology, direct patient care. Like it's all like, meanwhile, naturopath, you know, they maybe learn some relevant stuff. They also learn how to market their practices. They also learn like, you know, how to detox and cleanse. It's like, come on. One is evidence-based and one is not. So like, there's a big difference and dietitians do have a lot more um experience or not experience but training in how the body works you want someone like that if you are looking for answers right yeah absolutely so so on that note please tell our listeners how they can find you and and you know how they can get in touch with you so I am at abbylangernutrition.com. That's my site. And my social media Instagram is at Langer Nutrition and Facebook, Abby Langer Nutrition and Twitter at Langer Nutrition. And my book is called Good Food, Bad Diet, The Habits You Need to Ditch Diet Culture, Lose Weight and Heal Your Relationship with Food Forever. And it is available wherever books are sold. Well, thank you so much, Abby, for joining us today. We knew you'd be a great guest and you did not disappoint. And we love following you on social media when you, especially on Twitter. So folks who are on Twitter, follow Abby. It's, it's quite entertaining when she challenges these gurus and, and it's really illuminating and we appreciate your work and your willingness to take risks and put yourself out there. So we hope we can stay in touch with you and we really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us today. Thank you. It was good to be here. Thanks, Thanks Abby. Abby. Talk to you soon. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Run Farther and Faster Boston Marathon podcast. We want to give a special thanks to our editor, Aaron Bryan. And if you enjoyed this episode and enjoy listening to our podcast, please share it with others and please leave a review if you haven't done so already on iTunes. Thanks for listening and have a great week.